How does the Old Testament law fit into the Bible's story, and how is it relevant to the church today? Is it relevant to the church today? Well, welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and my very special guest today on the show is Richard Averbeck, Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois in the States. And Richard is here to talk about the place of the law, the Old Testament law, in the Christian life. And his new book from IVP InterVarsity Press America is called The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, Reading the Torah in the Light of Christ. And Richard joins us now from the States. Richard, hi. Hello, thank you. It's a pleasure for you to be here with us and for us to have you, sir. Thank you. Now, thank how you. how is the old, this is a, a really complex subject, I think. How has the Old Testament law been the subject of so much confusion and debate in the church over the centuries? Well, it actually started in the New Testament with the fact that the, that the church began really as a Jewish uh, movement within Judaism, and uh, they had a difficult time accepting the notion of what do we do with these Gentiles, these crazy Gentile believers who, who, uh, who uh, just don't belong, you know? And uh, so the Lord had brought them in, and in Acts 10, Peter got shocked by it, and the Jerusalem church got shocked by it, and then they had a difficult time negotiating it, how to how yes. to make it actually work. What did they actually decide? Well, they actually decided in the Jerusalem Council, first Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, uh, against the advice of some uh, zealous Jewish, even Pharisees who had believed in Jesus, they were true believers, that they would have to be Gentiles would have to be circumcised and exhorted to keep the law uh, like Jews, and that they would basically become part of Judaism. And uh, this got reacted to by Peter, and then by James, the half brother of Jesus, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, who said, "No, this is this is not how they've come. They came simply by preaching the gospel, and the Spirit came on them by by God's hand, uh, not in any other way." And so we need to let it be that way. And uh, it ended up being a church council decision. Mm, yes, as so much was <laughs> and should be, I suppose. How do, how do the various Christian traditions, or how have the various Christian traditions understood and interpreted the place of the law in the Christian life through the centuries? Because there have been many different views on this. Well, there's been, there have been lots of different views. There's been a lot of confusion. It was a problem in the New Testament. It's been a problem in the whole church time. It's created all sorts of struggles in the church and splits and various things along that line. Now, there's different views, okay, about how this actually worked. And so uh, uh, some would, would divide the law, for example, between moral, civil, and ceremonial and say the moral applause, but not the civil ceremony. Otherwise, others like, Theonomous suggests the moral and the civil uh, apply. Uh, and everybody has agreed uh, that the ceremonial doesn't because Jesus fulfilled that for us. The problem is that Jesus fulfilled the whole law for us. So, so that, uh, does that mean that the moral law doesn't apply either? You know what I mean? All of this. Mm. And these are real problems that have developed and continually created kind of a pushback and again, it's not surprising. This was going on in the apostolic age. And so uh, uh, this has been an ongoing problem. And uh, in my work, 
on the Old Testament in Leviticus and elsewhere has suggested me that we need to go in a different direction than that, than that three-view division. And then there's different views of it. Some have argued that it doesn't apply at all because we are not under the law, you know, and others have argued, no, we have the law as a guide to us, kind of the third use of the law in the Reformed context, and just a, a, a lot of different kind of analyses that have come to some extent from different theological systems within the church. And uh, uh, that that has been just the reality of it, and we have evidence of that in publications. So the issue is really, what do we do with this thing? And my approach has been to just build it differently mm. and think about, understand the Old Testament law first, and that's been a big problem. A lot of the discussion has come out of not understanding what's going on in the law in the first place and just talking about the law but not knowing the law. And then the other, and then taking the New Testament and trying to understand that when the New Testament writers were fully familiar with the law and knew how it worked and so on and so forth. Yes, just joining us now, we should say, is my co-host, Ian Reid, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Rido, hi. Welcome to the discussion. Hello there. Yeah. Hello there. <laughs> Time for you to scream. Rito, just quickly, what's your own view on this? Well, thanks for that, Brian. Very <laughs> briefly, throwing you in at the deep end. Yeah. Um, I, I think the law, yeah, is still important in terms of giving us a framework and boundaries for, for God's expectations. So there's the in one one particular thing is that it shows us God's holiness. So it communicates who God is. And so I think there, there must be some sense that it continues to apply uh, in some way. If, if this is God's nature and character, then then it must go on in some in some way. How that looks, I you know, kind of I'll leave that up to other people to kind of help me mm -hmm. see how that that kind of uh, works exactly. It which leads me very nicely into my next question. Thank you, Rito. Uh, to Richard, uh, what's your own view, or what's the view of the evidence that you've put together uh, of the place of the law in the Christian life? Well, that comes from a couple different places. First, the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, in the first place, talks about having the law written on the heart of the New Covenant believers. So it's clear that the law was not left behind in the New Covenant. That's important, and it comes through well into the way Jesus handles himself and teaches and just on through the New Testament. Uh, the area that I came to the position that I have comes from my work in Leviticus, and I'm writing a commentary on Leviticus right now, and uh, I've been working on it for, I don't know, 40 years or something. And one of the things that uh, stood out to me as I've worked on this and written quite a little quite a bit on it already. One of the things that has stood out to me is I've worked on the Levitical systems, you know, sacrifice and so on. And part of the writing was to include moving what is what happens in the New Testament with it. Mm. I found that the New Testament uses this material mm. to inform and direct the Christian life. And it used it very explicitly, which was not what I was used to hearing. I was hearing that the ceremonial law, quote unquote, didn't apply at all. Uh, to the Christian life. And uh, that's just not what's going on in text. And I got pushed on this uh, and realized I don't think this is useful, this this way that's been going on. And so I've written this book 
out of a lot of years of work uh, and interaction with lots of people, students and professors and so on. And that it's, I've just been pushed in a, this completely different direction. Yes, yeah, so a couple of fascinating examples uh, that you gave in the book. How do the New Testament writers speak of the ceremonial law? First of all, having typological implications for the life of the Christian. I'm thinking of the passage where Paul talks about giving our lives as a sacrifice to God. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that these are explicit uses of this material, and they actually have application to how we live. Uh, and this comes becomes real important. And then you actually get things like Ephesians 2 and 3 talking about we are a temple being built together, Jew and Gentile together, Mm. wall broken down, and we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then it develops this temple idea uh, into chapter 3, second part of chapter 3. So it's, it's like it uses it, and it uses it quite extensively. And, of course, issues, is purity important in the Christian life? Well, of course it is. How does that fit in terms of the purity, the physical purity laws in the Old Testament? How does that come through into the New Testament? And it talks in like First Peter chapter 1. It talks about um, purifying your soul, okay, uh, for a sincere love of the brethren so that you can go love well, okay? And so this terminology, the way they bring it in, if the issue is, we don't want to talk about, at least I don't want to talk about what applies and what doesn't. I want to talk about how it applies uh, and what does that mean in terms of what the New Testament writers actually do with this material. And that applies to the law when, when they divided moral, civil, and ceremony. It applies to all of it because it keeps on getting used the New Testament. Yes, yeah, so we're talking about a, uh, a moral or typological application of the ceremonial law. We're not, we're, not going, we're not expecting people to go out and recreate the entire sacrificial system. No, because that's been done for us, accomplished for us by the Lord Jesus. But I was fascinated by what you had to say about Leviticus 11, because this chapter is a great chapter about the clean and unclean animals. Now, how would a passage like that, in your view, have significance or instruction for us today? Well, one thing uh, is just understanding what God was doing with Israel, and that's a foundation for understanding what happens today. Uh, so I'll say a little bit about that. That It's clear that in uh, Leviticus 11, when it talks about the animals, it divides them into units. You have the land animals, uh, quadrupeds, and then you have the birds and the fish and so on and so forth. And one of the things that stands out is if you look at the regulations for land animals, uh, chewing the cud and dividing the hoof, those are pastoral animals. They're not going to eat blood. Okay. In fact, they can't digest blood and meat and so on and so forth. And uh, so I think it starts out by uh, God wants them to live within the system of you don't eat blood. So therefore don't eat animals that eat blood either. Okay. And so that's, that's a start. On it, and you can see that the scavenger birds are the ones that you can't eat. You know, anything, same thing, okay, comes on through. The other thing is that in Leviticus 20, then, this gets applied to separating the Jews from the Gentiles in the ancient world, to separating from the Gentile corruption, wickedness, and so on. This is in Leviticus 20. At the end of the chapter, it says, This is why I've given you the clean and unclean animal laws, is so that you don't. You can't eat with the Gentiles, so therefore you can't have covenants with them. You can't have fellowship with them. This then becomes 
the issue in the New Testament. When uh, you come to the New Testament, there's a baking wall of the down of the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. And so now we want one church. If you keep maintaining purity regulations in that way, you're going to divide the church. And of course, Paul really jumped on Peter about this in Galatians chapter two and said, look what you've done here. You know, you're creating two churches when he separated from the Gentiles when the Jews came from Jerusalem. So uh, this became a real difficult thing for them to negotiate because uh, they were so used to, and the church started Jewish and mm. so on. But this had to be eliminated as a way to express purity, okay, and to manage purity, because you can't have a divide between Jew and Gentile in the church. Rito, questions, responses? Yeah, I just think it's so interesting, isn't it, that how the... Um, from the New Testament writers, are kind of you know thrown into this world of Jew, Jew Gentile, you know, kind of, and how they're then applying that. You know, how does that kind of speak to you know, kind of Paul talks about in Romans, you know, the law of Christ. How, how does that? Mm-hmm. How does that kind of relate? Um, yeah, you know, and and what is Paul doing there? Is he picking up on that Old Testament law? Is he introducing a new law? What, what what's your kind of perspective on that, Richard? Well, many passages show that the law of Christ, you might say, starts with the two great commandments. Uh, love God and love your neighbor, right? Matthew 22 and parallel passages. Well, where does where does that come from? Well, those the two great commandments come from the law. And he says that the whole law hangs on these two great commandments. And that's the whole framework for understanding the law. Most people have not really understood the law that way they've seen it as a bunch of rules that really aren't significant when when in fact jesus is saying no this is what the law is about on all levels this happens in matthew 7 with the uh golden rule too the whole law hangs on this you know this kind of thing so then you can get like the sermon on the mount where he teaches the it's the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the law for the kingdom of heaven. It starts out with the Beatitudes, which are kind of like the Ten Commandments. And then it develops, okay, what do we do now with the law extensively? And he says, I have not come to abolish it, to destroy it, or to set it aside. I have come to show you what it looks like to live it in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes into these antitheses uh, with regard to how it's being taught in Judaism and says, you know, you, they teach it this way. I'm teaching it this way. You know what I mean? And, and he, he is very authoritative. So we have some good indications to, to suggest that the law of Christ is how the old Testament law is mediated to us in Christ and by Christ. He used the law to get at, okay, what he wants in the kingdom of heaven. And the law becomes a really good standard for that. If it's understood the way he has explained it and the way he explained it corresponds to the Old Testament law to begin with. So there's a lot going on with that question. It's a very good question. I would say that the law of Christ is how the Old Testament law is mediated to us by Christ because he builds it from the Old Testament law mm. to begin with. Yes, and fulfilled it, yes. How, how does it, one of the fascinating parts of your book, is, I mean, the biblical theology uh, that you build up is terrific, I think, and really, really helpful. How does the law relate to the covenants in the Bible? Because that's a big question that you deal with. That is a big question. I start with two chapters on the covenants because 
we have to understand the context of the law in the Old Testament is the Mosaic Covenant, right? It's given in the Mosaic Covenant context. Well, when we come to uh, the New Covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, uh, different passages, what you learn is that this covenant, this new covenant, is not like that previous covenant. It's a new covenant, okay? And the law is not written on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts by the Holy Spirit, okay? And so on. So what happens is that when we move from the covenants, we realize, yeah, the law is written on the heart in the new covenant too, and so now we need to understand, okay, what does that mean? How does that get developed in the New Testament? And that's what I'm really working on in terms of what the New Testament does with the Old Testament law. And I think it's it becomes clear that Jesus was not rejecting the law, was not setting it aside. And in fact, he says that won't happen until heaven and earth disappear. So, so the point is that uh, there's this continuity of the law, but under a new covenant, and that's important. The old covenant was made with a nation. The new covenant is with people drawn out in communities of faith in all the different nations, okay? The Old Testament uh, law was, was given without the coming of Christ, before the coming of Christ. Now with the coming of Christ, there's all sorts of development in terms of what the new covenant means with regard to the law. Uh, the old covenant, comes before Pentecost. Pentecost is a big deal in Acts 2 in terms of the nature of this community being really a prophetic community that's here to step up, stand up, speak up for the Messiah. Uh, and so all of those cause there to be necessary shifts from the old to the new. But there are already shifts in the law in the Old Testament. Okay, this is not a new thing in the New Testament. So this is something you would expect to be happening as the circumstances of the people of God change. And that happened in the Old Testament when they went from going through the wilderness to living in the land. Changes in the law were made to adjust for that. Same thing happens in the New Testament, but on a larger scale, because now we got a whole new covenant. Okay. And this is something we need to let, we let, need to let the Old Testament do what it does, and then we let the New Testament do what it does with the Old Testament. We don't try to make one or the other do a particular thing. Mm. Okay, Jesus has fulfilled the entire Old Testament law for me, and so therefore, what do I do with the law in my Christian life? What's the role of the law? Does it have any ongoing relevance to me as a Christian today? Uh, yes. In fact, the Apostle Paul deals with this pretty extensively in Romans 7 and 8. And he talks about how the law is good, it's holy, it's spiritual, and it is. It's it's not that it was, okay? It's, it's an ongoing thing. Yep. And uh, so he does that. But he also emphasizes that the law is weak. No law can change a human heart, not even God's law. Law is by nature a standard of behavior. It can't make people live by the standard. So what he moves on to is the weakness of the law in that regard. Because of my flesh, I'm going to violate the law. Okay? So what needs to happen? I have to change. Okay? And that happens, Romans 8, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can do things in the human heart that the law can't even touch. But... That same Holy Spirit 
who does that work in us, okay, in a very powerful way, that same Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the writing of the law in the first place. So he uses that in order to move us toward a place where we would we would be living according to the law as it's mediated to us by Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit has this power to work, and the, the power to work comes from the direct connection between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit. So it says it comes to this point in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 16, where the Holy Spirit testifies with my spirit that I am an adopted child of God. And that is what the chapter then really develops in terms of adoption. We've been adopted and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so we live out of that Holy Spirit working in us, in our spirit, to convince our human spirit in all the different nooks and crannies of our lives. We work with that Holy Spirit working uh, to convince my human spirit in such a way that it comes to a point if I'm overcome by this spirit in my human spirit, comes to a point where there's nothing left to go, do but go love God and people. Hmm. Uh, nothing else makes sense to me anymore. Okay? You know, wh what else would make any sense? Where does that uh, view leave the doctrine of justification, for example? Well, it's, it, it, the whole issue uh, that turns in Romans 7 and 8 is there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8 verse 1. And he's dealt with this, justified by faith, uh, Romans 5, 1. That's already in the background of what he's doing, okay? And what happens in Jesus is that God sent his son to die. So now, even though we are all tangled up in ourselves, as it kind of reflects in Romans 7, what I don't want to do, that's what I do, what I do, that's mm -hmm. what I don't yes. want to do, you know, this kind of thing. Basically, what he has done is he's just uh, eliminated that issue by his grace, and we accept that by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, but the effect of that is ongoing because at that point we also receive the Holy Spirit to work in such a way that we are transformed. And I do have an illustration of that that I use in the book. Maybe I should mention that here, the cutting of the Gordian knot. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, it's about Alexander the Great when he went up into the hinterlands in 330 BC uh, and began his conquest, he came to this place called Gordius, and uh, and there was this knot that tied, this is in the legends of Alexander the Great, was a knot that was tied to a yoke uh, for hitching the wagon to the yoke, and uh, nobody could untie it. There were no ends, it was very tight, and the legend became that whoever could untie this knot will uh, become the emperor of the world. So the legend is that Alexander came up to it, talked to somebody and took out a sword and chopped through the knot. He didn't even try to untie it. And God has done the same thing. He just cut right through the knot with what he did with Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no condemnation. Now, let's get on with living by the spirit, okay? And that becomes how he develops living by the spirit then in Romans 8, after chapter 8, verse 1. Mm, fascinating. Arido, your final responses, questions for Richard? 
I think um, from a practical point of view, a lot of people kind of, you know, as a pastor, a lot of people ask, you know, what do I do with the Ten Commandments yeah, in particular? You know, kind of it's it's the, the masthead of the moral law, you know, kind of mm-hmm. um, what what do we what do we do with those? You know, do we teach them? Do we uh, are they just a guideline? You know, what you know, what's your yeah. perspective on we still teach them. Remember the law is still good, it's holy, it's spiritual. And then the example law that he uses for that in Romans seven around verse six is you shall not covet. So he uses one of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Uh, and he talks about how that's good. It's the thing. But what happens in me? I keep on coveting. And, you know, I'm of the flesh, sold in bondage to sin. So what happens is that he develops then that the law is good, but I am of flesh and keep on going around in circles with it, all tied up in knots. Okay. And uh, then he, he, he comes to Romans 8 verse 2 and talks about the law is weak. And that includes the Ten Commandments. The, the, because the example law is the covet commandment. So what happens is he develops the weakness of the law, not as a, it doesn't make the law bad. It's still good. It's still holy. You got to hold on to the goodness of law and the weakness of law, both very tightly at the same time and not let go of either of them at all. And then you begin to see that, okay, the law is good. And then it goes on and talks about the Holy Spirit works in us in such way that we obey God's law as it comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so this is uh, a way it works so that now I actually have power within me to not covet. Okay. And I keep the commandments written on the heart. Okay. So that I am transformed. And that's the key. I have to be transformed by the work of the gospel Salvation by grace through faith and the reception of the Holy Spirit into my human spirit to convince me of my adoption in such a way that I give up on all this other stuff. Okay, And so the idea is to really uh, let the Holy Spirit and engage with the Holy Spirit in such a way that, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments, including, for example, one of the debated things is the Sabbath, right? Okay, the fourth commandment. Well, uh, that's interesting uh, discussion because it's really interesting in Matthew 11 when Jesus turns to turns away from his rejection amongst the Jews, prays to the Father, and then he says to the people, "Come unto me, all your labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I am gentle and humble toward you, and you will find rest for your souls. For my load is easy, my burden is light." This whole concept of rest now becomes the big topic, mm. okay? And that we have this rest in in Jesus. Jesus has not wanted to load us up. He's wanted to lighten us up, okay? And, and, and it, one of the great tragedies of the Christian life is oftentimes Christians live in such a way that, that they don't experience this rest when that's what we're called to. Well, what happens then, it's really fascinating in Matthew, the way he sets this up, because immediately— in chapter 12, he goes right into the Sabbath controversy uh, uh, and sets it up with this background passage of rest uh, for the soul and shows that they're taking this in the wrong direction. They're making it something it was never intended to be. In fact, they're making it a lot of work. Okay? <laughs> and, and, and and that's the whole point of the Sabbath is not to, to make it a lot of work. 
Okay, God intended this as a part of his grace toward the people of ancient Israel when he brought them out of slavery to give them rest in the land. Part of that was the Sabbath rest. So I've written in the book uh, a kind of a detailed explanation for how this comes through. And I work through the Ten Commandments with regard to this uh, and so on uh, in the section that really de deals with what's going on in the Old Testament law at the beginning. Mm. Final comments, Rito, before we close? I think that, um, that particular un you know, understanding that rest is what God has basically built us for. You know, and, and yeah. It, you know, it's such, such mm -hmm. an important thing. I was just going to, one, one little comment was, um, you know, when, when you get that, uh, the strength and the weakness of the law, when you understand that properly, you know, it really, um, it brings to light the fullness of the gospel, doesn't it? In, in oh, terms yeah. of, um, and it brings to light then how do I then live? I can't go back to the law and I can't then go, I must live in the spirit and I must live mm. by the gospel and not return to the law. But I think just as human beings, that's what we do. And we've seen in, in churches, what do we do? We, we heat people up with things to do, particularly on the Sabbath, to not experience that rest. But when you get that, when you understand the law rightly, you understand the gospel rightly, and you understand how you can live in that Sabbath kind of rest as a human being right now. Yes, absolutely. We're set free. We're really mm. set free. But then the Holy Spirit guides us to live in a way that corresponds to the law anyway. Mm. Yes, absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Richard. And this is a very detailed in-depth read but uh, it's a book i think that i think that uh, christians any christian could pick up and enjoy and get a lot out of so it's published by ivp and it's called the old testament law for the life of the church reading the torah in the light of christ it's made me think and question a whole lot of stuff and that's good so thank you to richard averbeck uh, in the states and thank you to my co-host ian reed the reverend ian reed of king's grace presbyterian church palmerston north new zealand gentlemen thank you for your time and thank you to our creative team at liquid edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes richard thank you so much thank you i've enjoyed this we really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the god story podcast if you want to help us make more great episodes like this one you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>